Hello and welcome to the first episode of Do Us A Favour. This is a podcast that discusses the daily questions and problems that life throws at us and attempts to provide some insights and solutions, often through the lens of gender identity. I'm Katie. And I'm Tanisha. And we are your hosts. Now we know two white cisgendered girls doing a podcast on life struggles, gender related issues, with probably a dash of pop culture thrown in there too. It's a bit been there, done that. And you're probably right. But we're hoping the reason why we've started this podcast series will keep you interested. We're co-chairs of an employee women's network made up of fabulous people from very different backgrounds, experiences and walks of life, but who all want to see a more gender balanced and equal society. During our network meetings, we share our thoughts, feelings and ambitions. We try to learn from each other and we support each other through the wider world of work and the workplace. And we wanted to bring these discussions and questions to you to spark further conversation and hopefully learn a few things by hearing different people's experiences and insights. Our network discusses various topics, sometimes difficult to talk about, but always worthwhile. We cover things like feminism, true equality and equity, diversity in the workplace, in politics and society, mixed with what's happening in the here and now. So along the way, each podcast will have a different theme that we're going to try to stick to as best we can. Uh, We'll also hear from some friends and colleagues who will be providing us with their thoughts from the week that's just gone. Um, They're going to be asking us some fabulous questions to round off each episode as well. Uh, But mostly it will be us reacting to lots of content. Don't worry, we are really quite funny people. I mean, I think we are. Maybe we're not. (laughs) I think we are. (laughs) Well, you can be the (laughs) you can be the judge of that. Um, But we'll quickly introduce ourselves so you can get to know who we are. I'm Tanisha. Um, I'm originally from um, a really small town called Rayleigh in Essex. I don't know if anyone's heard of it and I promise my accent won't shine through too much. Um, I work specifically in the energy sector in policy which sounds really boring and it is sometimes so I'm not going to go into it anymore. Um, I love cycling, playing netball and swimming um, and I love baking and eating icing out of a mixing bowl. That's me. <laughs> you sound so much more wholesome than I am. Um, I was like, anyway, so I'm Katie. Um, what I love is eating. I realised in lockdown pretty quickly that I had no hobbies outside of going to restaurants, pubs, bars with my friends. So that, that was interesting, a uh, little superficial fact about me. Um, what else is interesting? I'm half Italian. There you go. And I work in policy as well, but my focus is on the capital, which is London, even though I'm originally from near Birmingham. So as we mentioned in our introduction, during each episode, we'll have a segment called Comment of the Week, within which we'll hear from some friends and colleagues about issues that have happened or events that have taken place over the last seven days. Um, This week, we couldn't not touch upon the Black Lives Movement and the subsequent protests that are happening around the world, and especially in the UK. So now we're going to hear from some of our Black colleagues and friends on their kind of reactions and their feelings around both the, the movement and the protests themselves. And you'll hear our responses too. First up, we've got Josh, who's one of Katie's best friends from over the last 10 years. The days since George Floyd's death have been frustrating, angering, and extremely, extremely tiring. You know, what's important to realize is that 
for black people in the UK, of course, George is an important issue and, and police brutality in America is an important issue. And, you know, for many of us, it's we don't see these issues as being separated by borders. We all came from the same continent and, you know, it was by by virtue of what ship we were on. That's what decided whether we were American or West Indian. You know, that that's it. It's arbitrary. So the borders aren't an issue here. But what's important is that there have been many issues in the UK that I think have contributed to the level of activity that we're seeing on the streets in Britain right now. So throughout 2018, we had to deal with the Windrush scandal, which was devastating to see unfold. What happened there, you know, black British people being forcibly repatriated to a place they have no connection to, that's straight out of the BNP playbook. And I remember being a teenager and, and reading about these sorts of ideas, and they seemed to be unanimously disagreed with. So to now see the hopes of the BNP play out, thanks to the actions of mainstream political parties, I think it really speaks to how devalued black lives have become. Then there's a disproportionate number of black people dying from coronavirus. And knowing how people suffer when the virus advances makes hearing about those deaths all the more difficult. And you're forced to ask yourself, why is this happening? Why are black people overrepresented in the most unprotected roles? It's a question that needs to be asked, especially when you consider that Thames Inc worker, Bali Majinga, uh, was known to have a pre-existing condition and yet she wasn't stood down from the frontline duties where she contracted and ultimately died from coronavirus. And this is all before we get onto Britain's record of police brutality. You know, people think that it's not as bad here compared to the US, but there are deep systemic issues. Stop and start deaths in custody, the use of tasers, all these issues disproportionately impact black people and it's tiring to see. I watched a video on social media recently of, uh, of a black British man being tasered in front of his young daughter and I think we have to consider the breakdown in empathy that, that is occurring for, for someone to shoot a taser at someone in front of their young daughter. And I'll never forget in, in 2011, when, when Mark Duggan was shot by police, um, and Mark Duggan, his death sparked the 2011 riots in the UK. But what, what's always stuck with me is when a newspaper used a picture of him holding a memorial stone for his dead child, and they cropped out the memorial stone so they could decontextualize his somber expression and you know use that image to, to portray him as a criminal and to you know, further intimidate their readers and, and to make them believe that his death was justified when really it wasn't. And I think that, you know, this happened a lot in America in, in kind of previous years where an innocent black person would be shot and killed and, and then the press would say that there were no angel and Mark Duggan was no angel. Many of us aren't angels, but that's, that's not the point. We don't live in a society where the response to crime is is execution, not in the UK anyway. But I do think that what we're seeing now gives cause for restrained hope. I remember when the Black Lives Matter movement sort of started in 2013 and how few people knew about it or were willing to talk about it. And today I'm seeing people I would have never expected to speak out, speak out. There are monumental displays of allyship going on in all around the world at the moment and it's incredible to see. 
Minneapolis are going to defund their police force. British people are tearing down slaver statues. I wasn't expecting these sorts of actions to follow. So Josh makes so many valid points there. Um, but I think the, the one thing that really stood out to me was when he mentioned the Windrush scandal and how that is completely out of the BNP playbook, but yet that's playing out in mainstream politics now. And I think one thing we really need is racism isn't a debate and we shouldn't have two sides of this pretend argument going on. Um, and the reason we the reason people do that is so that it confuses people and those people who kind of normally sit on the fence or aren't quite sure they don't get involved because they're hearing too many sides. And if we don't get those people involved, the who tend to be more apathetic, things won't change because it's those silent voters. They're the ones that can really make a movement on this. Um, yeah. And that's where I think we get some more systemic change. Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, the the key thing I took from, from Josh's piece was about the, the disproportionate impact um, things like COVID-19 and other health issues have on ethnic minorities. And the, the, yeah. the example that Josh gave was actually the, the reason for that, or the, the example is that it's because there's a disproportionate amount of ethnic minority people working in frontline jobs. For me, there's a systemic issue, a much larger issue there around making sure that there is equi equitable opportunities and equal opportunities for ethnic minorities to go into jobs that aren't just frontline, that are professional services, you know, lawyers, accountants, and so on. Being able to have access to those jobs is so important. And I think it helps with things like unconscious bias in the workplace as well. So there's a lot of issues around fairness of duty of care in the workplace for white colleagues and black colleagues. That doesn't exist in every job. And I think there's a huge systemic issue there in the business community, in, in employers and their responsibility to protect ethnic minorities. And now we're going to hear from our fabulous colleague, Jasmine. As a black British woman, Black Lives Matter is more than just supporting and being a part of a movement. It's about my life, my sister's life, my parents' lives and every single black person in this world's life. I have donated to the right causes, signed petitions and shared resources for weeks. And I am exhausted, not because of my involvement, you know, I will always contribute to the cause, but I'm exhausted that I even have to justify that black lives are supposed to matter. Social media makes it so easy to be exposed to vile, racist and ignorant comments. And people who would never understand black people's lived experiences will tell you it's just a minority or ignore it or we're not all like that. But it isn't just a minority. These racist comments receive hundreds of likes, hundreds of responses in agreement, and then they go and manifest as white supremacists threatening and taking the lives of black people on the street and even in our homes. So that is why I am exhausted. I've seen people angrier over a slave trader's statue being taken down than they are about police brutality, and I just wonder when justice will ever come, and I wonder when I'll stop being so tired. Black Lives Matter is more than just a saying. Until I no longer have to defend my very existence every day and until black men, black women and black children can live peacefully without being brutally murdered by the people who are supposed to protect us, I won't stop. And that's what scares me. I fear I will never stop being so exhausted. The poignant messages there from Jasmine, what she said was, was absolutely spot on. I think that for me, the... The bit that she that stood out that was quite specific was the example she gave about the Edward Colston statue 
being pulled down in Bristol recently. And the fact that I think more people learnt about the UK's black history and slave history from that one act than we have in our entire education. And for me, there's a there's a wider issue there around the UK's curriculum and the, the history content that we get taught is not reflective of our recent history and our, pl- our part that we had to play in slave history. And they're, they're, for me, the, the imperative here is to educate ourselves as white people, but to also compel the government to update the curriculum and make it so that our history is accurate and absolutely fair to everyone in society. Yeah, completely. Um, oh, sorry, there's a motorbike going past. I don't that'll be picked up. Sorry if anyone heard that. Um, yeah, but I completely agree on the education point. And the fact is we've whitewashed so much of it. And I think this is you get this contention with the fact that we had, for example, the riots that happened over the weekend. Um, well, but not the the far-right campaign that came to defend Winston Churchill and it's the fact that actually the education system has failed everyone there um, because these people feel so threatened by the Black Lives Matter movement but it's because we just don't understand actually what these symbols really mean Um, and I think what I find frustrating and hope that we can kind of get out there is the message that actually a lot of the people that were at that protest, if you want, I don't even want to call it a protest, that's kind of political and democratic, but this rally, mm. if the those people would actually benefit so much from what the Black Lives Matter movement is actually trying to achieve. Yeah. One of the big issues we have, which does have a big part in racism, is the class system that we have in the UK. And there'll be many of those people at that rally that actually if they could get behind the Black Lives Matter movement, Yes, predominantly it's about making a fairer, more equal society and safer society for black people, but it would actually benefit so many more of those people too. Yeah. Um, they have been failed by the same system in a different way, but there is still a failing there. Um, and again, proper education would address that. Yeah, couldn't, couldn't agree more. Yeah. So we have Rihanna as well. So let's listen to what lovely Rihanna has to say. I think it's amazing and so refreshing to see all nationalities coming together to support the Black Lives Matter movement. We're now having this conversation at the forefront and I really, really appreciate that. But at the same time, I have my reservations and my concerns because I now see anti-Black Lives Matter protests. I keep seeing signs such as all lives matter, like we didn't know that already. But when it comes to gender or disability or sexuality, when we're fighting for gay rights or an equal woman rights, we did not scream from the top of our lungs that all rights matter. We knew that there was a problem in those fields and we addressed it. Even though it took time, we knew that there was a problem. We didn't try to brush it over. And we, I see this countless times again and again in the newspapers, brushing it over by placing the Madeleine McCann story as the top news, the top news front page paper, and then changing the, the narrative and um, describing the Black Lives Matter protests as, as violent and vandalism. So it kind of makes me reluctant to speak out because I don't think my message is being received and I don't know if people really care. 
Black Lives Matter is not just about the killing of black lives, it's about the equality of rights in everywhere we go, including the education system, healthcare, and the workplace. And I'm afraid when this is all said and done, because we live in a society where things are trending today and not trending the next, when it's all said and done, no one's gonna talk about it and no change is gonna come from this. We all stopped and watched George Floyd um, be killed by the police, murdered basically by the police. But I've seen 99 other times on my timeline where black people are murdered, unlawfully murdered in my timeline. George Floyd was probably the hundredth one. So many thanks to Rihanna there. Very thought-provoking comments from her. Um, I think for me, the, the, the point that stood out was that the, the media has a very big tendency to bury stories like the Black Lives Matter protests. And, and we saw it recently with lots of broadsheet newspapers, you know, plastering the Madeleine McCann story on the front pages mm-hmm. and not covering the protests, which were peaceful protests all around the country. Um, but when they do comment on the protests, it's disproportionately focused on violent protests and aggressive protests. And actually something that I really want to kind of say is that black people are not violent people. It's white people that have been violent to black people. And because that has happened over centuries, there is a guilt that has grown and grown. And what white people have done is effectively covered that guilt up with a preemption of violence from black people when actually it's guilt. And that is embedded in generations and for me, that's something that's very systemic. And that is a massive, massive issue. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's those feelings that lead to conscious or subconscious defensiveness and this irrational fear, which leads to this all lives matter response and the types of far right um, action, if you like, that we saw in London this weekend. But the very definition of white privilege is that you can go to this type of far-right rally, essentially, and you can attack the police by spitting on them and physically and verbally assaulting them, knowing that you won't be disproportionately faced with criminal charges or your life isn't in physical danger. Um, And if anything, I think that actually heightens why we need movements like Black Lives Matter and we need to make sure we're getting behind all black lives and black experiences and we're not just focusing on police brutality where traditionally this is discussed as a male black male problem but that we also address disproportionate violence that transgender black people face or discrimination of non-binary people or disabled black people black women um gay black people all the different intersectionalities um Yeah, and I think the other thing that really stood out for me from what Rihanna said is that she's becoming really reluctant to speak out. She doesn't feel people care. um, And that's really part of this problem of trending today and not tomorrow. Um, And actually, allies really need to hold themselves to account here. You know, black people cannot fix a system which they're excluded from and which was created in white privilege. So one of the things I'm really trying to focus on at the moment and kind of been talking um, about with friends is as an ally, what can I do to support black people? Where can I actually make a change and a difference? Because inequality spans across so many different areas and people and it can be overwhelming to know where to start. But if we can all make a change 
in specific areas, this has a cumulative effect. So I think we need to think about where we can have an impact, whether that's at work and ensuring your company reports on ethnicity pay gaps, or if you work in an industry that's traditionally very male, pale and stale, you know, how can you work to diversify that and have inclusive recruitment processes or even pushing for education to be more reflective of our actual history, whether that's good, bad, the ugly, all of it, and not have it whitewashed. And then focus on that, you know, reach out to black-led organisations to be involved, support, ask, what do you need from me and, you know, how best can I help? Um, and I think that's part of how we'll keep momentum going if people are focused and are really pushing a specific campaign. So there were a lot of really good points raised by our speakers this week. And actually, I think that Kate and I both agree that it's not our place to comment on everything. Actually, there's a role for us to, as allies to kind of to sit in listening mode and educate ourselves. And everyone needs to hold their feet to the fire to make sure that, you're, like you've said, campaigning is consistent, it's targeted, and that we don't stop putting the pressure on. And I think something that's really, really important to reiterate now that it's not up to black people to teach us and yeah. tell us what needs to change. It is up to us yeah. as white people to educate ourselves, to know what is right and what is wrong and fix it. Yeah, absolutely. And I would just add there, be supportive because one thing you will take from Josh, Jasmine and Rihanna and, and any any black person you speak to is the utter exhaustion of this because it is relentless. So if you're going to hold on to anything, hold on to the fact that this is braining and killing people emotionally and physically. And we have a duty to keep momentum up here and to push this for change. So we just want to say um, a, a massive thank you to Josh, Jasmine and Rihanna for sharing their thoughts with us. Uh, it's, it's deeply personal, um, very emotional, triggering, emotive. So thank you so much. We have learned so much from this and I hope that our listeners also do. Um, and, you know, if, if anybody else would like to talk on this issue or has, has got things they would like to say, we would love to hear from you. And this should be an ongoing conversation. We don't just want to touch on this once. So please, please do let us know. Um, and thank you again. So with that in mind, it is all very overwhelming. It is a lot. We are dealing with this in the middle of lockdown. We have Brexit rearing up again. Uh, let's not forget climate emergency that's also taking place. So we thought what we'd do with the second half of this episode is basically talk about something that comes up a lot during our network meetings, which is how the hell do we switch off, have a digital detox and take some time out when there is so much going on around us we are programmed and wired to be watching the news constantly on our phones. So we want to use this second half of the episode to look at how we can detox, try and give you some helpful tips, see what we can come up with. And yeah, let's do that then. So this week I took to Google first. So I wanted to find out what the go-to kind of articles, blogs, you know, all those resources online, I wanted to know what they were saying because, you know, from what I've read, 
in the past the the top tips the best kind of best practice on doing a digital detox is for those people who want to take a break for like a weekend or a holiday or a week something like that like a long period of time and I don't have that luxury in my life I honestly work quite long hours compared to some people who you know have time at the end of the day I do things on the weekend I don't have a lot of free time and I what I kind of do on my detoxes is more about in the moment how do I make the most of the free half an hour I've got or the free 20 minutes or a lunchtime where I don't have to be doing focusing on work or focusing on something else that's the moment when I can do my digital detoxing I didn't want to be too prescriptive and really what I've done is kind of water these down so that you can make of them what you want and try and do them yourselves. So my first top tip for doing a digital detox is having the opportunity to kind of break away from your phone by replicating different things, different kind of activities that you would do on your phone, but physically doing them in real life. So whether that's creating a calendar and making sure that all your appointments are in your kind of phone calendar or if it's you know gaming apps if you do crosswords or word searches or coloring for example all those apps that you have try and physically do them instead so what I do if it's a lunchtime for example or the end of a day or a commute home I'll either turn my phone off completely or I'll put it on do not disturb mode I don't have my laptop open, I'm not looking at my screen, I'm not looking at my phone. I'm choosing to use the time that I have to do something physical and actually quite mindful. So for example, I love doing word searches and I have like a ratty old book of word searches and a pen and I literally spend 20 minutes, that's all it is, 20 minutes just doing that. And what it does is, for me anyway, it focuses half my brain on the thing that I'm doing. So the word searching, I'm I'm searching for those words. But the other half of my brain is thinking very kind of proactively about a meeting that I've got coming up or if I've had a really crappy day or I've got something to plan on the weekend. You know, I am subconsciously answering lots of questions in my mind and I'm thinking about things that, you know, I'm strategizing or I'm planning or processing. And I would never have the opportunity to do that if I was on my phone on apps because my whole attention is on the app. I I very rarely am able to do both. But doing something physical instead of looking at my phone and doing it enables me to have that subconscious thinking. And I can't recommend that enough. Um, My second top tip um, is that your screen use, your phone use, you know, when we pick up our phones, when we look at our laptops should be purpose-led and not passive. So what do I mean by that? Well, we should only be using our phones intentionally, not passively. So if you pick up your phone when you're bored or if there's a natural break in the day or you're traveling from meeting to meeting or at the weekend, for example, and you've got nothing better to do except for kind of pick up your phone, you know, unlock it really quickly and just click on Instagram and just start scrolling and scrolling. And I've been there before. I've been on Instagram before for an hour, two hours, just scrolling. Um, I certainly do that on TikTok now. Um, But what I've had to kind of teach myself to do in those moments is actually don't open my phone unless there's a good reason to. And by good reason, I mean, 
someone's text me or emailed me and I need to respond there and then. If I don't need to, or if it's a notification that is just for information that is not to do with me at all, or an email that's just a subscription email, I ignore it. And I really try to only ever open my phone, especially my phone, my laptop too, but mostly my phone, unless it's for a purpose. And, you know, I think one thing about that is that more often than not, what pops up on our phone isn't actually for us specifically. It's, and you know, unless you've got kind of group chats going off or texts from family and friends, all the rest is just bump. It's just app updates. It's news outlets kind of giving us updates. It's not intelligent stuff. It's not mindful stuff. And I think what I've had to do actually, and this is a second kind of tip within this, is I schedule times when I can go on my phone for a jolly. So if I really want to go on Instagram and just lose my mind, if I don't really want to plan, if I want to have a break and I want to go on Instagram, I will plan 10 minutes and it'll either be on my commute or it will be, you know, when I get home from work and my partner's not home yet or when, you know, whenever that time is on my own, I will just give myself those 10 minutes just to do whatever I want. And then that's it. And I don't let myself do it again. You know, whether it's lunchtime, I try not to use my phone. I don't take it with me if I'm going on a walk or leaving the office. You know, like I said, on my commute, I like to physically do something rather than scroll on my phone for no reason. And actually, you know, there is there is a boundary there between feeling the need to be on your phone, but gain nothing from it, as opposed to being on your phone, getting everything you need by responding just to that one thing that's purposeful and getting what you need out of it. And that's it. And at that point, you know, when you're able to get that scheduling done and be able to set those boundaries, it's such a refreshing moment. Your days are a lot more structured. You don't just waste time, you know, hours and hours aren't just lost because you're on your phone doing nothing. It's so much more mindful, so much more purposeful. And I think that that is really the useful, the useful thing to have. Yeah. So these, so these kind of link a little bit to some of mine as well, which I think is a good thing. Yes. Um, so in my tips, the, the number one thing was all about basically, and I'm really bad for this, and like you flagged it just, don't look at your phone, your TV, laptop, like a screen first thing in the morning or last thing at night. Guilty. So yeah, I mean, aren't we all? <laughs> Especially because so many of us use our phones now for alarms. Like yeah. that's just the go-to. Yeah. And then you switch that alarm off. And if you haven't snoozed it a million times, which is what I do, the next time I actually pick it up is to then scroll so yeah if you can make your phone make your phone make your room um phone and tech free zone if you do need to use it for an alarm maybe place it far away if for example you can't do that and you need it close to you because there might be an emergency or something maybe think about um whether you could put it on like airplane mode overnight so that when you do wake up in the morning you're not like being pushed with kind of notifications and things like that so you have an hour just to kind of de-stress um, and a really interesting thing that I came across was it was done by the universities of Florida, Michigan and Washington, where they found that smartphones uh, are being used for work, especially at night, increased depletion the next morning due to its effect on sleep. Because obviously you've got the blue light issue, which is a real problem. It's also yeah. stimulating the mind. Same with TV. And that, OK, morning depletion then turns into like issues at work throughout the day and productivity. Um, so, yeah, that was the first one. Try and keep it free. 
And also just because that way that can really help with sleep. So I know a lot of people at the moment are struggling with sleep in lockdown or their sleeping patterns have changed a lot. And if you don't have tech, a TV, those kind of things in your room, your mind then associates them with a calm and rest rather than activity. Um, and I know it's really hard right now because a lot of people having to work in their bedroom. So I think that's something we can definitely look at, like maybe on a different app, like tips and tricks on how to like work more productively or feel kind of separation when you have to work in one environment. But if you can, not the phone in bed. So that's my number one tip for that. And then I'm also, taking, I am taking that one <laughs> away with me. <laughs> I need that help. <laughs> yeah. And then limit yourself to one screen, screen, screen at a time, which again, I'm atrocious for because I'm really bad at watching a TV program, but not really watching it because I'm on Twitter. So, Same. yeah. So I think this is all about, and I hate this sounds so douchey, but like conscious tech, basically. Yeah, I know. Cringe. But what, whatever you're watching, like engage fully in that don't have the double thing going on. You're not fully present. You're, if you've got kind of different screens. So if you're watching a TV program and your brain is constantly waiting for your phone to light up, it's waiting for those dopamine hits. Like that's the whole point, isn't it? This is why we're so addicted to our phones because when apps flash up notifications, it releases dopamine in the brain and that is just like exciting. So, uh, but also at the moment, news is quite anxiety inducing so you're going from that like really sharp dopamine hit to anxiety and that's just like not a good combination so I think yeah if we're looking at the digital detox maybe just limit yourself to one screen at a time and you can do that throughout the day I keep saying scream instead of scream I'm really struggling with that <laughs> scream scream okay I yeah. scream at so a time. then <laughs> literally um so then my third point is basically attack your apps. So spring clean your social media accounts, your inbox, maybe even delete some things um, with social media. It's a bit of a weird one because I actually got rid of loads of my social media a little while ago. Um, I'm so, impressed. Yeah, well, it was because I can't I met, do that. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, I started because basically I broke up with my ex and I couldn't handle seeing people posting on his pages and then it would flash up or couldn't stop myself like going on and finding out what was going on you know it's just it was unhealthy so I got rid of them I got rid of my Facebook which I deactivated my Instagram my Snapchat like the lot uh kept even got rid of Twitter at that time but then got that back for work um the only thing I kept was Pinterest because I love a mood board but oh, love it yeah, love a mood board always um <laughs> But what I then found is it actually made me feel so much better. So maybe really think about the apps you're not that bothered about keeping. And when I go onto my Instagram, is it making me happy? Am I getting something good out of it? If it's not, maybe you want to delete it. What I found was that I actually had loads of talk to my friends and I went and met them for dinner. And it was really nice to see their holiday photos, like fresh. But then maybe actually you don't want to get rid of it, but maybe you want to unfollow some people or if it's socially unacceptable to delete and unfollow them, just mute them so they don't appear on your timeline. So they're not giving you those stresses. Like make sure that whoever is on your app is making you feel happy. Again, with the inbox, if you're getting too many email subscriptions and they're just too overwhelming, the newsletters aren't bringing you joy anymore. Like Marie Kondo, the apps is basically what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I think, I think that's the thing. Like 
apps are designed to make us addicted to them. You know, researchers find loads of similarities between behavioral addiction, phone overuse, we're triggering chemicals. They want us to look. So we kind of have to be really strict and break that cycle. But also, it's also not our fault that we're so addicted to them and want to check them all the time. We are, Our brains are being trained to do that. And yeah, that's why we're like yeah. virtually compelled to use them. And that's not our fault. Like, that's not our fault. That's like the media developing itself. That's selling papers. That's getting clicks. Click rates up. You know, that's how the world works moves now on making everyone addicted to the next best thing yeah making sure again that we're all involved in something we're immersed in it so we come back for more yeah and that's our fault exactly and we're totally not alone so I found this thing was doing my research and this is such like a policy person thing to say but Ofcom did a study in 2016 but I loved it I mean I can I can literally like hear you laughing and basically I know (laughs) Yeah, anyway, here for Ofcom. one of my best friends works for Ofcom, so I'm going to give them a shout out. Oh, fair. Um, awesome. And basically, it said that 60% of UK adults consider themselves hooked to the internet, and one third find it difficult to disconnect. So, like, we are not alone. It is not bad that we feel like we need digital detox, and we actually just need to embrace that. And the other thing I did actually across this week, which gave me a bit of a shock, and um, I'll have to read them out at some point, but I downloaded one of those apps where it tracks the app use you're using. Ooh, and ooh, how many times how many times a day you open your phone to go on that app the times you regularly do it so I used one I think it's called like quality time there's another one space um it, yeah it was a bit disgusting <laughs> but well, it's a good shot I mean, it's like... made me really conscious now now I'm like I go to pick up my phone I'm like why am I about to pick up my phone and that's what happened when I got rid of my social media I'd pick up my phone and have nothing to do with my like I had nothing to do with it there's no need to scroll mm-hmm. so then you just put it down yeah. And actually, I feel like Apple are out to get us because they actually embed that type of analysis into your phone. And I don't know how everyone else has it, but every week, every Monday morning, I get like a pop up on my phone and it says for the last seven days, you've been using your phone for like 10 hours a day. <laughs> and then it tells you which app, which apps you've used the most. Yeah. Obviously, mine's Instagram, Instagram for the win. But <laughs> yeah, it's kind of daunting. It's really daunting because you're like, oh, wow. Like, wow, I could be doing something so much more productive than just scrolling other people's lives yeah yeah it's an emotional thing this thing though but like this is we're all it's also connected now and the problem is news has really infiltrated social as well so before people would get on social media to kind of escape stuff look at people's curated realities it's all lovely lovely and on the one hand it's really good that social media has become a bit more newsworthy and political because it engages so many people um you've seen amazing things haven't you seen it with like the black lives matter movement how much that could spread um and that's really great but at the same time sometimes it can be quite triggering when you open an app which you tend to go on to see what my friend's doing or a favorite blogger and then all of a sudden you're being hit with like really intense videos comments maybe you've said something and suddenly you've got a million trolls and like that is overwhelming so yeah yeah, it's getting the balance for sure so we also had a question from the public which is actually stemmed from one of our network meetings um, where somebody asked us how to switch off from the news when it's your day job to pay attention to it and let's be honest the day job runs into the night job so yeah yep Yeah, so this was from someone who they work in a team that is literally requires them to be glued to the news 
24-7. That's their job. They have to make sure they're up to date with everything to know when's best to talk about stuff and so on and so forth. And I think that that is probably the hardest job to have because, like, you know, in terms of being up to date with everything, you, you know, there must be, like I said, I have FOMO, but I'd always worry that I'd miss something and that someone would get to a story before me and I would miss out on that opportunity. And there's obviously lots of challenges there. So we completely understand that for some people, it's necessary to be on your phone a lot of the time. Um, but I think for me, it was, you know, in those situations, a couple of things really one I feel like if you're in a team and there's four or five of you obviously you know those who who have these types of jobs they usually work on rotor systems when it's out of office hours which is really useful you know it never used to be that way so that's that's definitely a plus but I think that you know in the moment in the middle of a day when you're you know you need a break you cannot just you keep 100% attention on your screen we all have those moments like I've said already I think it's making sure that you're comfortable in your team to be able to say to someone you know, I just need a moment, you know, even if you just had a lunch and you've come back and you're, you just can't do it. Can't face you know, it. Yeah. Just, just can't face it. It's too much. I feel like, you know, and this is a, something that managers need to make sure that they're aware of and making sure environments are safe and inviting and inclusive, but just to kind of admit to someone that, you know, this is just too much for me right now. Yeah. And that's quite an emotional thing to do, but it's quite healthy to be able to admit that. I think that's really important as well, because if you're a freelance and you don't have a team around you and you're kind of working on a project, doing research on something and, you know, you can't switch off, you have to be really strict with yourself and carve that time out. And that's a really hard thing to do. Absolutely. But I think that's where we have to stop glamorizing busyness and that actually we're OK to take time out. And sometimes things can wait. Sometimes it's not the end of the world to stop, take time out, process, and then come back to it another time when you're in a better state. Um, because otherwise you're not being productive anyway. If you're overwhelmed and things are all too much, you're not putting good output. You're just not. So, yeah. The other one, actually, I'm going to give a shout out to. So when you're having to watch the news for your job and you need another way to kind of decompress, going to give Headspace a shout out because my absolute fave. So, Headspace. yeah, anything mindfulness. You don't have to do the app. You could just do some breathing. But I think breathing exercises where you just take yourself away for literally like a minute, do some deep breaths, do the whole, you know, in for four, hold for four, out for six. Love all of that. I think that really helps. Yeah. Um, and just I think the other thing as well, so I was doing literally so boring. I was doing like my research. But I came across this article, which um, I think it was from the BBC, actually, but they were interviewing uh, uh, interviewing Tony Gallagher, who at the time was the Joint Deputy Mayor. Oh, God, I'm like flapping all over the place. It's tired. <laughs> Joint Deputy Editor of the Daily Mail and the Telegraph. Um, and he was talking about the fact that, you know, we get thousands of stories hit the desk, only 100 get into the mail. And by nature, those are the gritty ones, the gloomy ones, they're the exciting ones, because that's what, the readers want to be surprised by and I think that's really key as well when you do have to watch the news all the time just remember it is super sensationalized you are seeing the absolute worst of the worst um because that's that's what sells and we have to accept that actually some stories don't always reflect reality and just try and remember that and even if you kind of write that on a post-it note somewhere near your desk that actually you know it's not always as bad as it's churning out and just take that moment to process that. I think that can help 
it doesn't necessarily stop it being overwhelming, but it helps you try and like, rationalize that this is deliberately intense. Um, I was really interesting because yeah. in, in this interview, it was like a BBC Four documentary and he literally said um, at the time, so this is 2015, I don't know if it's still accurate, so don't quote me, but he was like, crime is going down, but you wouldn't know that from looking at the national media because we still cover the same number of crimes. We still cover the same number of murder trials. So there is a danger we're not actually reflecting the world. And I thought that was very honest, but also it was quite, it made, it made me take note because I was like, actually, yeah, this is deliberately overwhelming. Yeah. So looking back at our top tips, what are you going to commit to do for the next week? I think, let me think, I, okay, I'm going to do a sweep of my accounts and my apps. Nice. I think I'm going to go through my phone and I'm going to definitely deactivate or even delete apps that I just don't use anymore. I'm going to go through the apps I'm going to flag well, the ones that have photos, deactivate first because the amount of times I've gone back onto things to be like, where's that photo again? Apparently that is what social media is now. It's an online album. So I'm going to say deactivate. Oh, yeah. Good point. No, no. Good point. So we can pick it up in, in the future if I want a photo. Yeah. When okay, you're going on a hen do, you need an embarrassing picture of somebody or a stag do, whatever. Then you need to be able to go back to Facebook, go back to uni and get that embarrassing picture. So, yeah. Deactivate. Don't delete. Deactivate. Deactivate. Don't delete. <laughs> yeah. um, apps should hire us. <laughs> okay, yeah, so I know, maybe back. we shouldn't be saying that. Maybe actually just encouraging people. Still delete the app off your phone, though. <laughs> What about you? What is your takeaway? What are you going to do? So, oh God, I might do more than one. I don't know if this is pushing, <gasps> okay. pushing, pushing myself, but I'm going to do an inbox clear out of my work inbox oh, because I have signed up to every alert on London, like economy of the capital, business, everything. I've signed up to every morning newsletter from every type of newspaper to try and get like a rounded view of what they're all saying because it's also politically sided you can kind of find the truth somewhere in the middle but I read maybe one so I need to <laughs> I know so I need to do that and that's a really good like good one so spring clean the inbox um and then I'm gonna really try and not look at my phone for an hour when I first get up and an hour at least an hour before bed that's, I mean, if, yeah. if you can do that, I envy you. Yeah. And I want to know how you did it. <laughs> That's it for episode one of Do Us A Favour. Join us for episode two, when I'm sure we'll be getting a lot better at this than what we've done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please stick with us. <laughs> stick with us. It's going to get better. Um, definitely comment ideas down in the section below we want to hear all your ideas for different topics that you think we should be covering and talking about all ideas are welcome before we leave we've just got a final few words from josh who spoke earlier in the podcast and we hope it leaves you with some interesting thoughts for the next week bye bye so my hope moving forward is that we begin to look into the nitty-gritty of anti-blackness. I want to see our attention expand to exploitation in supply chains, war, the environment. Black issues are global and those of us in the global north have much to learn about the experiences of black people in the global south. And I don't just mean non-black people in the global north, I mean all of us. So before I finish, I just want to say to people who aren't black and who are listening to this, that I hope you put your faith in this movement. 
black people contain humanity in all its diversity, LGBTQ people, women, immigrants, Muslims, the working class, and the movement seeks to address issues affecting all of those groups. And so Black Lives Matter, I believe, has this really beautiful halo effect where the questions it asks are questions that affect all kinds of social groups. This movement is not at odds with your rights and freedoms, and I think that it has the potential to elevate society in every aspect. And to me, that's exciting, and that's why I hope that people will, will continue the energy and continue to ask questions and have conversations and donate to grassroots organisations. You know, in the UK specifically, black people make up only around 3% of the population, and so allyship is, is vital. We, we can't do this without allies. We don't have the numbers. So I hope that you'll continue informing yourself and, and becoming aware of what's going on and, and becoming aware of the power that we all have to, to change our immediate surroundings.